Well, good morning, everybody. And welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Thank you for joining us here at Gospel Saving Church in my home, McKinney, Texas. And thank you for coming online. Gospel Saving Church all over the world, SoundCloud and wherever you're coming from. Praise God. I'm so thankful that you're here. Anyway, let's get uh, rolling on with our message this beautiful day. And uh, let's say a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us to understand his word and and, uh, help us to, to learn and uh, that he would teach us today. So, Lord, we just thank you so much, Lord, for this word today. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you so much for your Bible. Lord, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord God. That is your word. And I thank you so much, Lord God, for your word and, and that it brings such truth, Lord, and it brings such freedom, Lord, and it brings such peace. So, Lord, I, I just pray that you'd speak to us today, Lord, out of your word and speak to us today, Lord God, with your wisdom and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and teach us how to live, Lord. For all of us that are really concerned and, and, and interested in living for you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how to live for you more and, and um, help us to see why we should even live for you, Lord. And Lord, for those that maybe be listening that are not yours, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see why that they would want to follow you, Lord. Why, what, what's so special about you, Lord, that They would want to put their trust in you and want to surrender their lives to you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you help us, help our hearts and help our minds to understand by your Spirit, Lord, all the things which we hear today. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to be actually in verses 27 through 50. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But if you join me for my thoughts from last week's message, Jesus stands before the governor. I want you to know one of the first things that God put on my heart for last week's message in my overview was to share with you the basic, you know, the fact that it was not easy for Jesus to stand before the governor and not defend himself against all those false accusations by the religious leaders. Personally, I think it took a lot of guts and fortitude for him to just stand there and let those evil-hearted religious leaders accuse him falsely, even though he had done no wrong. This action of his, what, what he did here, by allowing them to do that, shows me an even, an even greater level of love for us than I've, you know, that I've seen the extreme or an extreme love for us. Remember why he didn't fight back. He didn't fight back. Why? Because he had our eternities in mind. He knew that if he didn't lay down his earthly life for us, then we could never have eternal life with him. And I want you, if you can, to put your mind, put your heart in Jesus' shoes and think about what it would have been like for you to stand there, for you. Has anyone ever claimed you were guilty of something? And so they said you did something wrong. They said, you're guilty of this, but you were innocent. If you've ever been in that situation, it's very angering and it hurts You know that you're innocent, yet somebody's claiming that you're guilty of something that you never did. I know how Jesus felt 
because it happened to me some years back. Somebody in a church claimed that I did something wrong, claimed that I was guilty of something I did, and I didn't do anything wrong. And you know what? It made me angry, and it hurt me deeply. And in my case, I had witnesses, as Jesus did, that said he was innocent, and I had witnesses to say that I was innocent, yet I didn't act like Jesus. I didn't act like he did. I didn't hold my tongue. I didn't hold my peace. I did what came naturally to myself is I lashed out. I lost my cool because that's actually what just came natural to me. I lost it. Human nature tells you that if you're innocent and somebody claims that you're guilty, you just want to fight back. You don't want to hold your peace. No, I'm innocent and you can and you prove that I'm guilty. And, and when they can't, when you have witnesses that prove that you're innocent, it just angers you. And if you've ever been in this kind of situation, you know that it really stinks. Because I have, and I know that it really stinks. So I know how Jesus felt being the innocent man that he was. Yet... I don't understand how he didn't fight back. If I were him, I and he had every right to do so, I would have fought back and said, no, you're lying. And here, let me bring forth my thousands of witnesses that will tell you that I never did these things wrong. That I'm an innocent man. And you're wrong. But Jesus didn't do that. Because his extreme love was kicking in for us. His extreme love, he knew that if he would have lost his cool, and he would have fought back, and he would have slashed out at them, and told them they were wrong, that he probably would have been off and gotten off innocent. And then what would have happened? He would have never been able to lay his life down. Remember, he had a special mission from God. God said, go to the earth, die for the sins of humanity, and then resurrect the third day. And he knew that if he, this was part of the process, and he knew if he didn't do this, then we would not have had the chance to get saved. He allowed it all to happen to him because of his extreme love and desire for us to have salvation. His was the greatest love ever. His was the most extreme love that anyone could ever have, ever for anyone. Nobody, and I repeat, nobody can outlove God. God and Christ are love. You could say, uh, just a neat little way to think about it, they got the market cornered on love. Nobody outdoes them. They were for, they love first. We only even love them, the Bible says, because they loved us first. So just remember that Christ showed his extreme love for you last week in that section of scripture by not defending himself. And keep this extreme love thought going because we're going to actually talk about throughout our whole sermon today. That's why the name, the, the title of our sermon is actually titled The Extreme love of Christ. We're going to see this week what we saw last week, but
but we're going to see it in four different exhibits or four different situations that Christ was in where he showed an extreme love for us by what we're going to read here in a, in a few minutes. I'm not going to read all of our scripture today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 50. That's a lot for me. And maybe you're thinking, wow, Pastor Ed, your, your sermons are already like an hour. Are we going to be like an hour and a half today? No, because it, we're going to go situation by situation by situation by situation. And we're really not going to get too in-depth about all the little tiny, tiny details and super depth. We're just going to look at the situations and how Christ showed his extreme love for us in each one of those situations. So for time's sake, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 50, but I'm going to do it segment by segment, and I'm going to teach on it as I read it, so I'm not going to read it all up front like I normally do. I'm going to read it as I go. That way we can focus on the extreme love of Christ. Because he does. He has an extremely amount of extreme love for all humanity. He showed it to us last week in last week's scripture by not defending himself, right? When they accused him falsely, even though he was right. And I really saw his extreme love for us. But in these next sections of scripture that we're going to study today, I really, really, really see his extreme love for humanity in four special exhibits that he shows us toward the end of his life. So I want you to look with me at Exhibit 1, Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 31. And I'm going to read over 27 through 31, and we're going to look at the first exhibit of Christ's extreme love for all humanity. We see this extreme love and what he allows the evil Gentile people to do to him right after this time of accusation. Look at verse 27 with me. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. We read, Then the soldiers, these are evil Gentile, these are the wicked Roman soldiers, then the, then the soldiers, I mean, they're really just doing their duty, but we're going to see here that it seems like they go above and beyond their duty here. These Roman soldiers of the governor, they took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. What does this look like? Well, these soldiers of, of, the, of Governor Pilate, they come and they take Jesus. The praetorium is the governor's headquarters, okay? And it wasn't just one or two or three soldiers that we're looking at here that are just kind of gently grabbing Jesus by the arm and saying, all right, buddy, come on with me. This is what we call here a garrison. The Bible just called it in verse 27. It was a garrison. Uh, or another word for it was the Roman cohort. And they all gathered around him to take him into this praetorium or the governor's headquarters. Now, biblically, a cohort means a, a, it's a tenth part of a legion which normally means about 600 men. That's a lot of soldiers. But we're going to say here that this was not 600 men, okay? because we're talking about the governor's headquarters here, so I highly doubt that 600 soldiers would have come for one man. So it also means, a cohort could also mean just a mass or a lot of men. 
you know, uh, maybe dozens here. But it wasn't definitely 600. I don't think the Bible's telling us that here at all. It just says, though, a cohort. And biblically, again, I went to the definition. This can either mean a tenth part of legion or a whole bunch of men. So a whole bunch of men come and they take Jesus. Not just one or two. Verse 28. Look what they do to him now. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Jesus just allowed him to strip him. Why would they strip him? They strip him because they were trying to put him to total shame. Plus, they wanted his whole body exposed for what they were about to do, which was put a red or reddish purple robe on him, which was the color that a, a normally a king would wear, right? And remember, they had just got done, they had mocked him earlier, right? Oh, hail, king of the Jews, right? And this was not because they were honoring him as the king of heaven and earth that he really was. No, it just meant that they were going to mock him some more. Look at verse 29. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, this is what they do to him next, and we're not talking about just like, you know, these little tiny little, you know, kind of things that kind of, you know, like I, I have a job and, and there's some succulents and cactus there. And, you, and when I'm touching them, I kind of sometimes I brush my hand against a young, you know, cactus and I get some and I get some, you know, some spiny things in my hand and it kind of itch or, oh, I have to dig out one little one little thorn. No, we're talking about a crown of thorns. We're talking about thorns that are an inch or more long. They twist a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. That can't feel very good. And they take a reed and they put it in his right hand. And then they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Now they're really not honoring him as the real King of the Jews. They're mocking him here. They're making fun of him. They give him a reed, which is like a hard stick. And they put the, a crown of thorns on his head, which is not a real crown. It's a, it's a mock crown. It's a crown of pain. Because they know they're about to crucify this man. Pilate had just given the charge, hey, go and take this man and, and crucify him. And so this was just a whole insult to injury, mocking this wasn't just, the, okay, they already flogged him. They're going to take him to the cross. They're going to nail his hands and that's it. He's going to die. No, they have to mock him. He allows them to mock him. Verse 30, then they spat on him. They're spitting on him while he's got the crown of thorns in his head. While they're bowing down to him, while they're standing up, hail, king of the Jews, they're spitting on him. Have you ever been spit on? I know when I'm been talking to some people sometimes and they get kind of adamant them maybe a little spit will come out of their mouth and it kind of lands. and even that's disgusting like you know like oh and i usually say hey watch your please don't you know say it don't spray it that's a saying we have now right well no they're not doing this on accident they're spitting on him to mock him and to and to, to to shame him to 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 tear down to take away all his pride and to humiliate him 30, then they spat on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. Now they're taking this reed, which is like a hard stick, and they're hitting him on the head. Now this is with the crown of thorns still on his head, ladies and gentlemen. 
What do you think is going to happen when you hit somebody and they've got a hard crown of thorns on, on their head? Well, they're going to drive the crown of thorns into his skull. His flesh would have started ripping off of his head. And this is what he's allowing them to do. He's allowing them to mock him, to torture him, to abuse him. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, you could say some more, because that's what they've already been doing, mocking him. They took the robe off him. They strip him again. They put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to be crucified. They mock him and mock him and mock him some more. And think about this. He allowed all this to happen because of his extreme love that he had for us, that he has for us. And he allowed this to happen because he wanted to be able to offer us salvation. And this is just how they treated people. They had no respect for Christ. They didn't think, oh, well, he was, he's the real son of God, or, oh, he's really God in the flesh. No, they had no respect for him. So they mistreated him, and they mocked him, and they spat on him, ripped his flesh open, and just completely treated him like a piece of trash. And he allowed it to happen. Now, if... The fact that he allowed these evil Gentile peoples to treat him this way doesn't really, really, really show you his extreme love for all mankind, then I'm not sure anything really will. But we do have three more exhibits of his extreme love. So let's look at exhibit number two, and let's look at what Jesus allows the evil people to do to him next. I'm going to read over verses 32 through 37, and I'm going to read it slowly, and I'm going to kind of comment as we go. And we're going to see, I hope you see, the more and more and more extreme love that Christ has for humanity. Look at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So after he was flogged, and after he was stripped, and after he was beaten by a reed, and the crown of thorns were driven into his head, and his clothes were put back on him, he's so weak to carry a cross, they voluntel, that's a, that's a word kind of I made up for this sermon, they I used to say voluntold, there's a joke word we have now, but they voluntel, they tell Simon forcefully, hey, you're going to help this man carry his cross. Why was he too weak? To carry his cross, you might be asking. Well, we, we see in Matthew verse or chapter 27, verses 26, 29, and 30, we read in 26, after Pilate gave the charge to uh, have him crucified, it says that then he released Barnabas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This was a scourging unlike we know today. We live in a very political correct world. And even criminals that murder lots of people are given these fair trials and, and then they're led away and then they may spend 30 years in prison where they're just going to maybe die from natural causes and they're supposed to send a life sentence and they cut people's eyes out and murder people in prison and then they get nothing. They get the death penalty, but then they still sit in prison for 20 and 30 years eating up tax, taxpayers' dollars. Here in these days... They wanted to make sure that if they were sending somebody to the death penalty and they gave somebody the death penalty, that they were going to die. 
And the cross in and of itself, although it was a horrible torture technique, it was a horrible torture to death technique, they, they did something a little bit more. They scourged people. They whipped them. But then they would tie little balls of metal onto the ends of the whip, and as they would beat somebody, as they scourged them, it would literally rip the flesh off their body, making them have these open wounds and gush with blood. And they did it time after time after time. In fact, many times the scourging left people unable to even, they they died before they ever got to the cross. Many times the scourging would rip open their flesh so bad that their organs would be exposed. They scourge Jesus first. His body is bleeding. He's got open wounds. He's gushing with blood everywhere. Then 29 and 30, we already read him. They, they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. He's ripping the flesh off of his head. And if you think I'm kidding, go to the prophecy of Christ where we read that they beat him so bad that they didn't even know, the Bible says in prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, I believe, whether he was a man or a woman. That's how badly he was beaten and how badly he looked once the scourging and once the crown of thorns and once the reed and once the mocking was all done, he was literally a torn apart man. So why was he too weak to carry his cross alone? Well, because basically he was beaten into an inch of his very life. And they had to bring somebody along to carry the cross, to help him carry the cross, I should say, because he never would have made it to Golgotha without somebody helping him. And please, I don't want you to think that this was them having mercy on Jesus. Oh, well, they had mercy on him. They, they called Simon the Cyrene. That way he could help him. That way, you know, he, you know they, they would just help him out. No, he was so weak He never would have been able to carry the cross by himself. Literally, they had to call Simon because they had a job to do. They had the crucifixion of Christ to do, and they didn't want to carry him. He was full of blood. He was a mess. Half dead, 90% dead. They didn't want to touch him any more than they already had to. So they say they volunteer some guy, some strange Traveler through the land, hey, help this guy right now, help him right now. And you did dare, dare not tell the Roman soldiers no, because uh, he might have ended up next to Jesus if he would have told them no. So this was not mercy that they were having on Jesus. No, they just had a job to do. And they had to get Jesus to Golgotha so that they could execute that death penalty. And if they didn't do that, then they would have been in danger of the death penalty. So they had to do what they had to do. Look at verses 33 and 34. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So uh, wine mixed with gall was supposed to be like a sedative. It was supposed to be like something that just relieved his pain a little bit. Maybe they thought he was going to cry too much. Maybe they thought he was going to pass out because of the pain. So they thought, well, we don't want him to die before the cross. So they give him this wine mixed with gall and to drink to lessen his pain. But does he take it? No. He doesn't take it. He says, I'm going I'm to brave the pain. I don't want any help. Verse 35. Then they crucified him 
divided his garments, cast lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What do they do? They strip him again. They take all his clothes off of him again. They crucify him, and then they gamble for his clothes. Fulfilling a prophecy, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. But but think of this: you're the king of heaven and earth, and you're allowing these people to do this to you. They strip you to insult you again. They take your clothes and then they gamble for them like they're really worth something, full of blood and blood stained and everything. Right? It was this was nothing but disrespectful and insulting. Their whole goal was to just demean and blaspheme and disrespect and treat Christ as if he were nothing. What was their whole goal with all this? And Christ allowed it to happen. So now, we just read they hung him on a wooden cross to crucify him. But what does that mean? What does that entail? What's involved with the crucifixion? Well, they take the prisoner And usually they tie their arms first around the arms of the cross and they tie their legs and then they take these big metal nails and they have this hammer. And then they take these nails and they hammer these nails into his hands right through the center of the hand so that they don't break any of the bones, but they want that nail to go in there so that they can hang there by that nail. And of course, the, the, the tying with the ropes helps the arms and, and the nails and the hands helps the prisoner just not to fall off. And they put the feet together and they take a nail and they drive the nail through the middle of the feet. And as the prisoner hangs there, because they hang him up in the air, and as he hangs there, his torso kind of hangs down and his feet are on the nails. And here's kind of what happens. A, a lot of times the prisoners would, uh, would be in such pain because they would die of suffocation because as they hung there, th- there was such pressure on their windpipes, there was such pressure on their lungs, they couldn't breathe unless they pushed up on their feet while the nail was driven through their feet so they could take a breath, and then they let go, and then the pressure would be on their hands again, and then they'd have one breath. And they'd only breathe if they had to breathe because the pain was so intense on the feet when they had to push up with the nail on the feet just to take a breath. That's what it meant to be crucified. And while they're doing this, or even he even shows us another extreme amount of love for us here. While they're doing this, while the religious leaders are about to start mocking him some more, Luke 23, 34 tells us that he says, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's bleeding everywhere. Flesh is ripped off his body. Flesh on his face. You can't even tell whether he's a man or a woman. He's blood everywhere. He's dripping blood. It's been hours that this has been happening since the since he, he had the Last Supper, and then they arrested him in the garden, and then they took him and bound him and put him in prison and beat him and beat him and mocked him and beat him. And if that, if that isn't enough show of his extreme love, then he tells them, then he says to them, the people that are doing this to him, the people that had just done all this to them, to him, Father, 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Extreme love after extreme love after extreme love. I'll tell you that there's not a greater love that I've ever known that anybody ever gave anybody than the love that Christ showed for us in these first two exhibits in just period toward the ends of his life. So, they strip him, put nails in his hands and his feet, nail him to this wooden cross, humiliate him by taking off his clothes again and gambling for them. Then look at verses 36 and 37. Sitting down, they keep watch over him there, and they put over his head the accusations written against him. So while they're sitting there after they crucify him, what are they doing? They're watching him suffer. Watching him die slowly. Then, in another attempt to mock, they write above him, Oh, hail, King of the Jews, or, or oh, oh, uh, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We already know they didn't believe that. We already saw them right before, right after they twisted the crown of thorns and they put the reed in his hand and the crown of thorns in his head and the fake robe to mock him. They went, oh, they they bent the knee to mock him. Oh, hail, King of the Jews. We already know they didn't believe that he was the real King of the Jews. Although we know by Scripture this was, Pilate told them to do this, I'm sure they were enjoying this. This man, barely alive. They knew what kind of pain he was in. And yet they sit there and they watched him suffer. And they wrote mockingly above his head, Hail, King of the Jews. Christ just displayed here more extreme love for us than I have ever heard of anyone showing anyone ever before. Amen. I don't know anyone Ever in the history of man that's ever gone through this, that's ever allowed something like this to happen to him willfully. Ever. Ever, ever. Does his show of extreme love for us end there? Not quite. Look at what he allows to happen to him next. Look at exhibit of extreme love number three. Look at verses 38 through 44. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right hand and one on the left. So two robbers, two thieves, two men, you could say, that deserved to be there were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. They deserved to be there. Jesus was an innocent man. It had been enough for an innocent man to be crucified alone, but no. They had to crucify robbers along with him. Why? I believe because, hey, you know what? I don't care if you're innocent or guilty. Spit in your face again. Put two men up there that deserve to be there. And you know what? Now you're with them. How sad is this? Now God already knew this was coming. And we know Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that they made his grave with the wicked. So by this happening to Christ, this fulfilled prophecy. Again, God's always kind of showing us, hey, I I knew this was going to happen. What an extreme love that is for us, huh? That God set this all up, and then he knew it was going to happen, and then he allowed it to happen. There's an extreme love show by God's side. That how could you sit there and watch your only son to die, you know, send your only son and watch him to die for the sins of the world, right? I mean, he, he had to love Jesus. 
And I, I know I hate when my sons or son goes through something that, that, that hurts them. It hurts me. God even shows us an extreme love here by sending Christ and knowing that it was going to happen and setting it all up so that what? Again, he could pay the sin penalty for, the, for all humanity all over the world. Look at verses 39 and 40. And those who pass by blaspheme him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. People just keep belittling him and mocking him and belittling him and blaspheming and mocking him some more. And he allowed it all to happen. And of course, the evil-hearted religious leaders have to continue on in the action of mocking and belittling and blaspheming. Look at verses 41 through 43. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if if, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Now, Jesus could have come down from the cross at any time. We're going to see that here in a little bit, because we're going to see how Jesus allowed this to happen to him. So imagine you can come down from that cross any time, and they're going, oh, he saved others. Oh, let him save himself. Oh, if he was the king of the Jews, oh, let him come down now, if he really is the Son of God. And Jesus, knowing that he had that power to come down off the cross at any time, what kind of willpower do you think it took for him to sit there and allow this to continue to happen to him, even when he knew that he could come down at any moment off that cross? Amazing show of the extreme love of Christ. And on their side... What an amazing show of hatred for Christ that they have, right? Considering that he never hurt anyone or hated anyone from beginning of creation until then. Christ never did anything to hurt anybody. Yet, on his deathbed, we'll call this, they're mocking him and treating him badly and belittling him and telling him that, come down off the cross, mocking, mocking and blaspheming. And yet, another section of Scripture that shows His extreme love for us as He stays there and allows them to mistreat Him and mock Him while He hangs almost lifeless on this torture-to-death device, the cross. But it gets worse even still, 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. Now the robbers, He had never probably met them before this day. So they had no idea if he was an innocent man or if he was guilty. Oh, what do they do? They jump right in and they get their little kicks in. They kick him while he's down, you'll say. As all the others and as all the religious leaders were already doing him, kicking him while he was down. One thief, just one, thanks be to God, the only one that was for Jesus at the end of his life, because he had nobody, one thief repents later and turns to Christ, but that was it. Everybody at this point 
had forsaken Christ. He was all alone, and everybody there at this moment was against him, belittling him and mocking him while he's in intense pain, suffering, flesh ripped off his body, and he hangs there lifeless, just waiting to die. Extreme love. Extreme love. The extreme love of Christ. And his final act of extreme love for you and me, exhibit number four, his death, verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Nobody may know what this exactly means, why there was darkness over the land for these hours, but I think... What I feel in my heart, and I don't think it's unbiblical, and I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm speaking heresy here, is I think because I knew God was hurt by this happening to him, I believe that that darkness represented God mourning in heaven for his son lying there, lifeless, being mocked, and being mistreated, and being crucified. That although he allowed it to happen, He still knew it had to happen, but even though it had to happen, it didn't mean that he was happy about it. So he said, you know what? Darkness. Because right now, I'm sad. So darkness engulfs the land. Verse 45, verse 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, verse 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He points everyone there. We'll talk about it next week more in depth. But he points everyone there to Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm by David, where he starts out the psalm with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And like I said, we're going to study that in depth next week because that was a huge cry and call out to the lost right there on the cross as he was suffering. He's still showing an extreme love for the people that are there by crying out to them saying, look to Psalm 22, even though they didn't have numbers at that time, but everybody would have known that Psalm. Look at that Psalm and look what I'm saying, guys. I'm giving you a hint. Who am I? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verses 47 through 49. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So what do we have moments before his death? We have some mocking him still. While one lone soul there says, man, this guy's really suffering. And he goes to take wine and he puts it to Jesus' mouth, which was, that was kind of to quench his thirst possibly. One lone soul that was there said, man, wow, this guy's really suffering. And you know, this man was a man of God, whether he's right or wrong, and he's crucified, he's almost dead. He, he was a man of God. Man, let, let, me take some, let me take some wine. Let me, let me quench his thirst. Let me give him some relief. At his death. But while the rest, they're mocking him. Oh, let him alone. Oh, let him see if Elijah will come for him. Oh, oh, let him alone. Mocking, mocking, mocking. Talking down to him. He's God Almighty in the flesh. God could have destroyed every single one of them right there that moment. And yet, another show of extreme love. For he didn't. 
and he let it happen. And in the ultimate show of his extreme love, verse 50, he dies. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice there the Bible says that he yielded up his spirit. What's that mean? It means that he allows his fleshly body to go ahead on and to die. But sadly though, when you put verses 49 and 50 together, we see the last great extreme show of love, that they mocked him until the very moment that he took his last breath on earth. This is heartbreakingly sad. But again, as I said earlier, he knew God had a special mission for him to complete. And so he allowed this to all happen to him because he could have escaped it at any time. He could have said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done, I'm out of here, I'm going off the cross, and I'm going to escape all this pain. He endured all this torture and mockery and hatred and murder because he had all of us on his mind. And what? All of our eternal lives on his mind. All of our salvation on his mind. Now you may be saying to yourself, why do you... Why, Pastor Ed, why do you keep saying that Jesus allowed these evil people to do this to him? Jesus didn't have a choice, right? I mean, these evil people were doing what they were doing to him. He, he was just stuck. He didn't have a choice to come down off the cross. He didn't have a choice to escape at all, right? Wrong. Wrong. You can't be more wrong if you think that. I, I don't, I don't want to be mean, but you couldn't be more wrong. When you consider that at any time these evil people were doing all these evil things to him, he could have just did like what he did in Luke 4. It changes everything. What did he do in Luke 4, you may be asking. Let me tell you about it. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, we read about an account where Jesus goes into a synagogue. And they have a weekly reading. And so he stands up and he's handed the book of Isaiah. And and as he starts to read, he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'll pick up in verse 18, Luke 4. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He's reading a messianic prophecy of the Christ written over 600 years or around 600 years before Christ ever lived. And that's what he gets the book in Isaiah, and that's what he starts to read. But he points all that toward himself. And he's in a synagogue, and he's full, and it's full of Jewish people that believe in God, but they're Jews. They're not Christians. They're not his disciples. So he closes the book, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, verse 20, and, and the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Now he's now, notice, he's prophesying of this time that we're in right here in Matthew chapter 27. Didn't that what they just said? Oh, if he is the son of God, let him come down off that cross. He said, you will surely say this to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, as surely I say to you, 
No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up and three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and many lepers who were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. What's he saying? He just told them, hey guys, you guys are like those people in Israel back then where all the people in Israel were back there, but they were living so wickedly that God only sent these blessings to non-Jewish people. Because you, you guys, your descendants, like you're being now, they were all living wickedly. So God didn't bless them because they were living in wickedness. God blessed the Gentiles. Then he, said, then he says this to them. And so what do you think they do when they're told that they're like the, that they're more wicked and more worse off than the Gentile people? So all those, verse 28, in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Of course they were angry. You're not going to sit there and tell us we're worse than the Gentiles. They were filled with wrath toward Jesus. Verse 29, what they do? They rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. They had murderous rage because he just told them that they were sinners and that they were worse than the Gentiles and that God would send the prophets and the men of God to the Gentiles instead of them. They were going to throw him off the cliff. They had him in their hands. The whole synagogue, probably hundreds of people, had Jesus. And they were taking him toward this cliff, and they were going to thrust him off this cliff and murder him. And in verse 30, Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. What do we read? Jesus all of a sudden went into a metaphysical body. He, he passed through a whole hundreds amount of, of amount of peoples that had come from the synagogue to kill him. And he somehow went into this spiritual body and passed through the midst of them because it wasn't his time to die at that time. And that's because he was the son of God. He wasn't bound by our physics. So at any time here at the end of his life, he had a choice. And yes, here at the end of his life, he allowed them to treat him this way, to put him on the cross willfully, again, all because of his extreme love for us. Now, do you really, 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 really see the extreme love that Christ had for us at the end of his life? Putting it all together, we see this quickly. The fact that at any time that these evil-hearted people were stripping him naked to humiliate him, beating him, mocking him, spitting on him, hitting him on the head with a reed while the crown of thorns, where the thorns of the crown were digging into his skull with every hit, ripping the flesh off his face, then making him walk to the place of his execution, carrying his cross with Simon, not just walking by himself with his flesh-torn body and with his broken body, at any time while he was at Golgotha, while they stripped him of his clothes again and gambled for them, while they hammered metal nails through his hands and his feet into the wooden cross, while they wrote the words that they didn't believe above him on the cross to mock him some more, while watching him die slowly, then they then all the time, all the while, while they crucified him with two real criminals who deserved to be there, 
that were next to him, while everyone but one of the criminals around him taunted him and mocked him until the last moments of his life, at any time during all of this torture and mocking, he could have just gone into a spiritual form and escaped it all just like he did in Nazareth, but that he didn't because he had your and my and the whole world's eternal destiny on his mind shows me the most extreme love that anyone has ever had for anyone ever. This extreme love blows my mind so much and I hope it does yours also. And don't be deceived. He didn't just do this for the people that were on his side because as I mentioned earlier, Only until the last moments of his life did one of the criminals actually turn and say, hey, you know, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. So the majority of time that he was there, everyone was against him. And all those that said they were for him had fled from him. He was all alone while he did this. Maybe this would have been easy to go through with some friends out there. Hey, Jesus, you can do it. Keep going, remember your love. But no, they mocked him till the last breath that he breathed on the planet. Now we see what Paul writes in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, and you could say, while every single person on planet Earth was against him, he still chose to die for your sins. And he could have escaped it at any moment that he was going through it. But he didn't. This is such great extreme love, I can't even comprehend it. My mind says, what? I don't understand. I I can't even think to myself, could I ever do something like this? Because there's just no way. This took extreme fortitude, extreme love, extreme devotion to God. And for us, and Jesus had it. So, today... What could our response be to Christ for this extreme show of love that he showed for us on that day almost 2,000 years ago? What, what could we ever do to repay God for sending Christ? What could we ever do to repay Christ for doing what he did for us? What if I gave my body to be burned? What if I let myself be crucified? What if I starved myself to death and said, oh, I'm doing it in the name of Jesus? It's still wouldn't be the same because if others were doing it to me, I wouldn't have the choice like he did to give up. I wouldn't have the choice to get, like he did to say, no, I'm out of here. No, I would be stuck. And me, I'm a sinner. Whatever happens to a sinner, hey, we're sinners, you know. We've done lots of evil. Hey, evil is due us. But Christ, he was not evil at all. Nor did he do any evil at all. He was righteous and perfect and holy and didn't deserve one 
ounce of this happening to him. Yet, it did, and he allowed it all to happen to him. And so what today could we do to show him our love? What could we do to repay him? I can tell you right now, there's not one thing you could ever do to love him back in the extreme way that he loved you. Not one. Not one. Not one of us could ever display the kind of love towards him that he displayed for us. Not one of us. So how could we ever respond to him for his extreme love that he showed for us? There's only one way. There's only one way. That way is found in giving God the one and only thing in all creation that he doesn't have. Because yes, there is one thing in all creation that God does not have that he wants and that he desired. Do you know what it is? Think about it. He doesn't have us if you're not his already. And he can't just take you forcefully because then that would be violating the free will that he gave you. So he doesn't have us. And what does he want from us? He wants our extreme surrender. Lord, I need you. Jesus, I want you in my life. I can't live without you. He wants you to realize that you can't live without him today. You can't live without him today. There's no way. You may have been living without him all this time. But how's that going for you? Because I did that for 25 years. And it didn't go well with me. My life was miserable. I lived in hatred, in torment, in, in, in filth, and in just disgust. My life was a mess. How's your life today? You can't live without him. You may, but you'll be miserable all the rest of the days of your life. So he wants your extreme surrender. He wants you to extremely say, Jesus, I need you, and I don't want to live without you anymore. Today, if you've seen his extreme love for you, then please turn to him now and surrender your life to him and start a relationship with him. Because that's what he really wants. There's no way you could ever repay him for the love that he's shown you. But you can give him your life. You can start a relationship with him. Because that is why we were created, ladies and gentlemen. We were created by God to know him like he knows us. We were created by God to have fellowship with him. That is why we were created. And you can give that thing to God. And it wouldn't repay him, but it would surely give him what he wants because he's already shown his love for you. And then you can live a life for him, serving him instead of yourself. You can say like Paul, Lord, I, I give myself a holy and living sacrifice to you. And then you can do that. But you can never repay him. You can just surrender to him. And you can just fall down on your knees and say, Jesus, I need you. Please save me. I, I need you. I want a relationship with you. And then you can serve him. And that's really what he really wants. So remember that today as you go on your way. Remember the extreme love that Christ showed for you. 
and the extreme surrender that He wants from you. He sure gave up a lot to get us. He wants all of you in return. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much, Lord, for your extreme love that you showed for us, Lord. Lord, I read the words on the page, but Lord, my brain has a hard time comprehending the way in which you gave yourself and you willfully did it and you could have, and you could have not done it lord but the fact that you did it lord and you allowed it to happen to you lord i don't even understand this love all because you love me and i'm not worth it lord i don't know any human being that's worth it cuz we've all broke your laws we've all sinned we've all blown it so, lord all we could do today is is just lord we need you we could tell you we need you We could just thank you for your great love that you showed us and we could respond to it by just our extreme surrender. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to love you in just even a hundredth of the way that you showed your love for us. Lord, help us to really, really seek your face, Lord. Help us to really have a relationship with you. Because, Lord, we could never repay you. But all we could do is give of ourselves to you and realize our need for you. Lord, you love us so much, and I thank you for that love. You're so amazing, dear God. And thank you so much for everything, Lord. I pray that you, Lord, bring to you all those that are listening to this message that are not yours. And I pray that you draw them to the throne, draw them to the cross, draw them to Christ through this extreme love that you showed toward the ends of your life, toward the end of your life, and, and toward the final part of your life. Thank you, Lord. I praise you, Lord, and I thank you. I ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015, and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions, or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.